Hello, and welcome to Wands and Fronds, the weekly podcast that covers magic, houseplants, and more. I'm Shannon. And I'm Nick. And we're your co-hosts. So today we're going to cover the herb that's probably at the top of the list for witches, both old and new, Salvia officinalis, or sage. And I'm going to be talking about kitchen witchery, but it's a lovely day, Shannon. I just want to ask, how are you doing? Um, You know, it's been... A week. I discovered last week that I had the dreaded spider mite. Shit. And <laughs> I know, I know. My, It's funny. My plant that I mentioned in literally our intro episode saying it was my favorite, my Calathea gray star, uh, was totally covered in them on the bottom of its leaves. And I was just being like a shitty plant mom and wasn't paying as close of attention as I should have. But I've been on a kill mission and I think I'm pretty close to having them at least to the point where I can't find them anymore. So that's, I mean, it's something. So, so what, are you, was, what are you doing about that? Did you do the soap thing? Because I remember I got spider mites one time on an ivy. And Yeah, oh my God. Ivy loves to get spider mites, by the way. Well, no, it was really <laughs> dumb, though, because it was like I did the soap thing, and then the spider mites were gone, but then the ivy died. And I was like, okay. Oh, what the, yeah. <laughs> you know, like uh, <laughs> like the old yeah, mom like tricks. The treatment sometimes is worse than the disease. Um, no, so I, I was originally thinking about doing neem oil, and I did get this sort of like three-in-one fungicide that was like garden-safe brand or something like that from Lowe's. But the more I read about it, the less comfortable I was spraying it all over stuff that was going to be like in my living space. So I actually ended up doing a mix of like uh, rubbing alcohol, some water and then um, peppermint soap or peppermint Castile soap, the Dr. Bronner stuff. Oh, so, okay. So, 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 so some like natty soap. Yeah, yeah, some natty soap. And I spray down like the front and bottom of the leaf. And then I literally have gone in with each fucking leaf and uh, an old makeup brush. <laughs> okay. And, like, so yeah, we're like, so, so we're giving like every leaf a little bit of attention, not yeah, just yeah. dumping soapy water on it. Gotcha. Exactly. Gotcha. Gotcha. Because that's, I mean, that's the thing, right? Like spider mites are so tiny. They like to hide in the little crevices. And if you just miss one, it's like, I think I read that one spider mite can turn into 300 within a week because they, they can like change sexes and like self procreate. It's really weird. They're fucking Oh yeah. Nasty. Spider mites. Fuck. But no. So I have, uh, I also kind of wanted to like, say it is officially fall here in texas and i'm Aww. loving it yeah how has that been for you okay so uh do you know do you know sycamore trees i do know sycamore trees i've met them before right right so you know how like the leaves on sycamore trees kind of smell like cinnamon when you like step yeah. on them Oh yeah, they smell so good. And it's like it's like that time of year. It's like when you're walking down the sidewalk or even like biking down the sidewalk, which I often do because I feel unsafe in the bike lane sometimes. And I just bike down <laughs> I mean, the sidewalk, even though you're not supposed fair. to. It's Texas. Like Austin is still in Texas. But no, it's like that is one of my favorite smells. And I do not know why they don't make scented candles out of that. No, it that smell for some reason always makes me want breakfast food. And right. I don't know if it's I don't know if it's because of the time of year, but when I when I smell that, it just makes me think of like Kirby Lane breakfast pancakes. Oh my god. Yes. I would love some pancakes <laughs> right now. 
but no it's like the smell of fall is here and like that to me that that. is like the unofficial smell of fall is like the sycamore leaves getting crunched on the ground it smells like cinnamon it's delightful it's fall (laughs) it's fall it is fall i'm loving it you know throw me some pumpkin spice in anything i love pumpkins anything pumpkin pie spice is like it's so good and I miss pecans being cheap and readily available. That is like the biggest bullshit on the West Coast that like they have the audacity to charge real money for pecans. And it just makes me mad. It's rude. I know. I'm like, you know, I used to just like get an entire grocery store bag of these from my grandma's yard every year. Right. <laughs> yeah, right How dare right. you? How dare you? Eight dollars for a tiny little bag. Fuck off. OK, so speaking of pecans, Thanksgiving is coming up. And one of the things that, like, I really wanted to get into our quote-unquote Thanksgiving episode is kitchen witchery. I was so excited when you brought this up. I mean, first of all, because Thanksgiving's coming up, but also my favorite memories with you are us cooking weird shit when we lived together and, like, we were young and broke. Oh, my God, Dankaroni. Dankaroni, we would make, like... All of the egg drop ramen. Oh my god! Uh, you know it's it, it was it was chief egg drop ramen because we would mix like chicken and beef ramen, creating uh, the flavor of chief. Chief and plus then, eggs, and then and then you put eggs in it. But no, oh my god! So there's so many flavors of witches out there. And I know that, like, anyone listening to this, like, you probably subscribe. I I would say, just based on the content of this podcast, that we there's probably a few green witches listening. But there's so many flavors of witches out there, just in, like, modern American paganism, even. There's, like, green witches. Yes. There's crystal witches. Of course. There's uh, sort of chaotic witches, which I, I'm kind of more in that category and sort of like intuitive with everything and one of my personal favorite flavors is the kitchen witch totally underrated i mean so just to like start off here i this is totally an intro to kitchen witchery so this is not meant to be like sort of an end-all be-all thesis about kitchen witchcraft but yeah i i feel like that could be its own podcast it, like it just could about be kitchen its witchery. own podcast for sure but it's like just talking about it maybe for people who don't know so much about it it's like one of the oldest forms of witchcraft and depending on how you look at it because infusing a homemade meal with your intentions is in fact a very powerful way to perform your craft in everyday life. And it's not just about like the herbs that you're using, though, of course, many of your favorite culinary herbs are actually magical while at the same time being delicious. And like, yes, obviously, sage, garlic, thyme, like so many of your favorite things to cook with have magical properties that like we, like literally we talk about in this podcast and it is sage day so i'm gonna save that for you but like garlic thyme even onions have like magical properties considering that a traditional hearth 
is not part of how we're living anymore. The kitchen kind of takes that place, though. It's like the warm center of your home. So, like, when you go to a party, where do you hang out? Oh, always the kitchen or with the cat. Or with the cat. And it it really is like the it's like the center of the home. Like even in an apartment, like the kitchen is where it's at. And there's just like that energy there. And like as a guest in someone else's house, you almost always end up hanging out in the kitchen. It's so, so, so important, ritualistically speaking, to like feel out that vibe. I mean, like the kitchen is not perhaps your altar. You know, but it it kind of is in a way because it's like it has that energy. Well, you perform more daily rituals in your kitchen than you do at your altar. I guarantee it, unless you are a person that doesn't eat or drink anything and then you're an alien and I don't know why you're listening. <laughs> we don't want we do not want to exclude if you are an alien, please send us an email. Shannon, what is the email? Uh, wands and fronds pod at gmail.com. Okay, okay, great. Yeah, wands and fronds pod at gmail.com. So, yeah, send us an email. No, okay, so, so I was looking up all this stuff about kitchen witchcraft, like trying to like cram the best stuff that I could into a little podcast segment just to be an intro. Cause I mean, it's Thanksgiving, like, we're about to, some of us are going to be spending time in the kitchen. And it is that place. Like, it is that place in your house. Like, it's the warm center of your home. So do some fucking magic there. And I was, like, trying to figure out, like, some context that would be just good for an introduction. And I read actually a really nice article on the Bon Appetit website of all places by uh, Carla. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to butcher this. Uh, Carla Ciccone. And it was about her grandma's doing... Italian folk magic while they would be cooking, like rubbing eggshells into their hands and doing stuff to avoid the evil eye and like all of the many, many things that you can do with salt. And it's like kitchen magic is, to me, I think it's like the easiest magic because you're gonna cook. And if you actually like think about the herbs and the ingredients that you're cooking with, you are using a lot of things with magical qualities. So like that aside, just like just putting your intentions into a meal that you're serving to the people you love. Like you can protect them. Like you can infuse it with your love. And it, you know, it's like um wedding cake. You know, it's like um we're we're kind of unintentionally doing these things too. Like, I, I don't think the baker that makes the wedding cake is necessarily a kitchen witch, but the idea of a wedding cake is rooted in kitchen witchery. Um, but, you know, it's like a, it's like your, your sort of uh, your fruitcake at Yule time. It's like uh, there's like a certain or it's like your your king cake at Mardi Gras. You know, it's there's so much that we're already doing. That is borderline kitchen witchcraft. But it's like. Well, I mean, birthday cakes. Mm -hmm, the pro the practice of cake. blowing out candles on a birthday cake. You know, this that's so much inherent magic. You're totally right. I, it's like a champagne toast at New Year's. 
there's all of these things that we do that involve eating that are very ritualistic and very t- just tied up in food because I think you know it's like I said it's like the the hearth used to be not only like where you would cook and it's keeping your house warm but that's also where people used to do their magic and that's you would gather around the fire at night like that's what you would do whatever other recreational thing you were doing telling stories or you know like reading to each other like whatever else you were doing like way back in the the day like way way back in the day you know you would do it around the hearth and it was like it was everything because that was also where your food came from it it's my favorite thing of witchcraft too because i love to cook and i feel like it's the most accessible type of spell work for people that are maybe early in their craft you know the idea of doing sort of ritualistic spells i think can take some time to feel comfortable with it but the kitchen is also a perfect place to infuse like little bits of magic and and, you know it's like it's um it's kind of expensive to go out and buy essential oils and crystals and altar cloths and candles and candle holders but you probably have stuff for many many different kitchen witch spells in your own kitchen that you can not only do but i mean you can make that part of dinner time you know it's like there's a lot of bread spells out there or even you know your morning tea or coffee Mm -hmm. like yeah putting your intentions into your morning caffeine fix so here's here's like a question and this is like totally off the cuff but it's like would you think that like gong fu cha is a is a flavor of kitchen witchery i mean you know it's all about the chi and the energy and like grounding yourself in the moment with the tea i mean if nothing else it's like a great way to do a kitchen witch's meditation yeah or i think about the process that i watch my partner do anytime he makes um instead of you know doing our automatic pour over if he makes you know, something in the Chemex, Mm. that type of really meditative practice of you have to weigh things and you have to have intention. And if you practice witchcraft, why not add in some magical intention into that? You know, it's time that you're also already spending. You don't have to create new time for this ritual. You know, and that's a that's a great point. It's like you are already doing a lot of stuff that would count as kitchen witchcraft if you were to ritualize it you know it's like your morning coffee you could make that your time that you are setting your intentions for the day and that is literally kitchen witchcraft you're already a kitchen witch you just gotta think about it so you know it's and so i think that was like my intro to witchcraft was kitchen witchery you know it's like learning how to cook from my mom and grandma you know, it's like in that article, Carla Ciccone's article on Bon Appetit, it's like there's certain superstitious things that you learn in the kitchen. And it's like even though my grandma and my mom, well, maybe my grandma more so than my mom, would identify as a Christian, some of the things she does are very witchy. That's that's what I kind of think like everyone is a little bit of a kitchen witch. Going into Thanksgiving, I mean, I, I, I'm I, sure not everyone listening to this is celebrating Thanksgiving next week. And I think 
the responsible thing for people to do is really to be kind of, you know, going a bit minimalist with Thanksgiving this year. But, you know, just something to keep in mind if you are around your family and you are cooking this big meal that like that is so that is a place where you can put your craft to work in a very subtle way, you know, and like we always say, there's a lot of people in the broom closet. So, you know, you're especially with your in-laws, you know, it's like you might be you might be out to your partner or like the people in your family your age but you know maybe you're not comfortable telling your grandma that you're a witch and you know unfortunately for her you you uh you might be a kitchen witch and you might be doing witchcraft on the food so uh you don't yeah. have to tell her uh but we and I- but speaking of which though so we're all potentially a lot of people about to be encountering our families uh, people we don't necessarily care for are like mixed up in that. Yeah. Families are complicated at the best of times. Uh, yeah. And, you know, it's like coming from Texas, as we both do, I think, uh, you know, like the stereotype of someone you don't run, want to run into at Thanksgiving is like your your racist uncle. Oh, man. The racist uncle archetype exists for a reason. Mm-hmm. You know, or it's like, uh, will someone will someone please keep grandpa quiet about the political stuff? Like, sheesh, you know, and I think for a lot of people out there, especially people who are just getting into the craft, you know, there might be sort of a temptation to do like binding or cursing or like some very drastic measures to deal with these people in your family. And that's my questionable witchy practice of the week is kind of less of a something weird I've seen on the internet or, or, you know, like how we usually do it. And it's just kind of more of a warning to the people out there especially the beginners like now is really not the time to curse your racist uncle um and i actually we had a really uh shannon actually was telling me about this uh, a really nice idea to do a sweetening jar instead so yeah they go low we go high they go low thanks michelle we go high yes shelly you you said it best um, so so maybe instead of of you know getting out your your twine and and binding your racist uncle, um, we kind of had the idea to do a sweetening jar. So uh, for this, you're gonna need some materials, uh, a jar, um, preferably with a metal lid, although a sealing lid of any kind is fine here especially if you're not planning on um like actually drinking the honey for too long after you do it. I mean honey is uh pretty shelf stable in and of itself. But we're talking about sort of making it into a syrup and that's um not. Um but you could also use sugar. You could use syrup if you've got it. Maple syrup is fine. Yeah, I've seen a lot of maple syrup as a good substitute if that's just something you have around. Yeah, I mean, especially for, like, Canadian people out there or, like, people in the Northeast where, like, maple syrup is uh, not super expensive. But, no, so honey, 
is fine. And it doesn't have to be, you know, like your super fancy honey that you put in your tea. It can just be regular honey. But the idea is is to kind of sweeten the deal. So we need a jar. We need a paper and a pencil um, or a pen. You know, we're, we're while we're throwing substitutions out, we, you could do a pen as well. But you got to be really careful when you write your stuff. <laughs> and um, a candle with a color that matches with the theme, I would say white because it does tie in so much to purification. And uh, that, to me, kind of lends itself to, like, clearing the air. A good time for a reminder, too, that white candles are also a really good replacement. If there's a candle color that you're really wanting to channel and you don't have it on hand, white is good for purification. But again, it can also sort of be like a joker, a wild card candle. That's true. And I was saying white here because of the purification indication but it's like if you were going to do this um with a romantic partner like red or pink would be fine i mean and trust your intuition as well you know like look at your candle collection you'll know which one pick them up hold them yes so you're going to want to write with your paper though um a petition for this and that's like the main part of the spell and so like let's say you have someone that you're either going to be around or who's like coming to your home. Um, you're going to want to like write your name three times, like using a, a separate line or like a good enough space to like indicate a line uh, three times going one way, going across one way and then uh, turn it 90 degrees and then write the, the offending person's name across so that you almost end up with like a hashtag kind of a shade. And then around that, you're going to write your petition, which can be like, please let me not argue with my racist uncle this Thanksgiving. And you want to write it in a circle around it. And you, and you kind of you want to kind of space it out. You, you want to like plan the spacing so that the ends touch and it makes like a full circle. Um, so you, and then you get that and you put it under your jar. So in the jar, you've got honey, you've got water. And then you can kind of pick and choose your herbs as well. And not to say that they're like interchangeable, but like depending on the situation. So uh, I was looking at cloves, which is like for friendship to like foster an atmosphere of friendship. And then vanilla, which was to um, foster sweet wholesome energy and i love that because i i hear those two nick and i'm like those are herbs that you might have in your pantry also you absolutely probably do and lavender just for like a general atmosphere of calm and relaxation like you're trying to set the tone with this you're trying to sweeten the deal so to speak and what I had seen that you can do with this is um, you burn the candle. You burn the candle on top of the jar. That's really the best way with your petition underneath. And then you can take a few spoonfuls of the honey yourself, which will, I mean, with vanilla and lavender and clove, I mean, that's like probably going to be delicious. Mm. But just to kind of take that into your own sphere and like embody this spell you've created for harmony and balance. And then, I mean, you know, watch the results. So, so, so our, our questionable witchy practice this week, you know, we're not making fun of TikTok witches. Uh, it's more of a warning. 
you you know, you might be tempted to do something to these people. And we say this because we have both been tempted to do this thing to these people. (laughs) Yes. And, and this is coming from experience, but it's that, I mean, it's like one of the main tenets of the craft is like to not harm people. And I think, you know, like a binding is very extreme, you know, like, and a curse is very extreme. And like, you shouldn't be fucking with that, really, if you're a beginner, especially. Uh, So maybe sweeten the deal instead, you know, sweeten them up. And, um, you know, just to like cover all my bases here, I did want to say that like sweetening jars are a hoodoo ritual originally from the research that I had done. and. Although it is widespread, and I am recommending this to people, I just want to say it's like not with the intention at all of cultural appropriation. And I to also just say, if anyone out there did feel like this was cultural appropriation, feel free to tell us. We're Shannon. We're yeah. open. We're open to things like that. Are we not? No, we are totally open to things like that. And I want to say that, like. I hope that you know that Nick and I are coming from a place of wanting to learn and we don't want to appropriate. And so if we do something that does feel like that, we really do want you to say something because we want to do better and we want to be good allies and we want to be productive members of the witchcraft culture. And so we are not the type of people that are going to scream at you and get defensive if you point out something that we've done that's hurtful and harmful to other people. That's not who we want to be. That's not who we are. And that is not a sort of environment that we want to create at Wands and Fronds. Right, right, right. And in the spirit of diversity, I kind of had this idea because I know a lot of witches out there have their own personal gods and spirits and deities that they kind of like to prefer over others. And what works for you might not necessarily work for the next person. And so I wanted to kind of do uh, deity profiles, like just kind of pick out different deities from different traditions and just kind of talk about what's going on with them. So I think this week we had you look into look into uh, that a little bit more. And I think you had. Yeah. Hecate. So First of all, Nick, I think this is a brilliant idea. I mean, first, I think it's so fascinating to learn more about different spiritual practices and what different paths look like. But I also know that for me in particular, when I was very new to the craft, I mean, unless you're walking around with a copy of like Edith Hamilton's mythology, it's really easy to get confused and to get lost because there's so many different iterations of gods and goddesses and like they change across cultures and like the whole Greco-Roman issue. Oh my God. Yeah. We're it's confusing. It's very confusing. It's so confusing. But I wanted to start this new segment. I was so thrilled when Nick mentioned it because deity profile to me very much felt like dating profile. Like (laughs) these are like our Tinder profiles for gods and goddesses. Um, (laughs) And it's just, it's so brilliant, Nick. I'm so, I'm so excited to do this. So you, so you picked Hecate to like kick this off though. And That's a very chaotic choice. It is, but it's also, I felt like, as a witch, I feel like Hecate is a very obvious place to start, and maybe that's, like, my very Western bias, but she is considered, like, the mother of all witches. I've also recently gotten really into modern Hecate and witchcraft, which I'm sure is probably part of that. 
But I wanted to like start by saying I had some great resources. So Cindy Brannon wrote some fantastic books. The one I'm reading right now is called Entering Hecate's Garden. And she also has a blog called Keeping Her Keys. And so a lot of this information came from there, but also from the Ancient History Encyclopedia, which is a really fun website that you can definitely go down a rabbit hole on. Um, But to sort of back it all up for people who maybe aren't familiar, Hecate is a goddess of Greek mythology. So she's really got some complexity about her. You know, she's really capable of both good and evil. um, And she's especially been associated historically with witchcraft, magic, the moon, doorways, and creatures of the night, like hellhounds and ghosts. So would you would you say that she's maybe like an OG goth? She is an OG goth, and she has really persisted across cultures and throughout time. When you see pictures of her, she really is often depicted carrying a torch to sort of remind you of her connection to the night. And in a sculpture, you'll often see her with three faces. Um, and they say that's like her role as the guardian of the crossroads, But we also see sort of through the evolution of Hecate, she becomes associated with like the triple goddess. So like the maiden mother crone. So uh, would would you say that there's like any ties between that and like the biblical trinity? I think that the idea of a trinity is something that's persisted for a long time throughout cultures. This idea of three as being a holy number. As you know, I and just to like take a step side, that is like my number is the number three. Oh, I know. I've definitely like stolen some threes from like events I've worked to give to you because it's very important. I mean, personally, I think it's kind of hard to trace this, but you can see the Holy Trinity in Christianity comes after paganism. Oh, and this 100%. idea of the triple goddess talking about the three aspects of the feminine I think becoming the three aspects of this masculine tradition that is Christianity, it kind of really encapsulates the way that Christianity took things that were very feminine oriented and super pumped them up and made them masculine. Like like, how much of this podcast do you think is us just going to be explaining to people (laughs) that their beloved Christian holidays and ideas are stolen? Oh, girl, just wait. Uh, so to back it up on Hecate, her origins most likely go back to Asia Minor and parts of Eastern Europe. That's sort of where we can trace it to. And from there, her cult really spread to ancient Greece. Uh, she was viewed as a Titan there. And according to Hesiod and Theogony, Hecate is actually the daughter of Perseus and Asteria, making her the granddaughter of the Titans Phoebe and Coeus. So Unlike other Titans, though, she actually wasn't killed by the Olympians. Instead, Zeus actually gave her dominion over land, sea, and sky. Speaking of triples. Mm -hmm. She regularly appears in Greek art and literature, but only starting in the 5th century BCE onward. So because of that, there's some people that think that that could point to Hecate being a relatively late arrival in Greece from Caria, but... Through all accounts, she really is considered a Greek goddess and not a foreign origin by the ancient Greeks. And the Greeks really did see her sort of as like a matron watching over their home. And one of my favorite old ways to sort of honor Hecate was this idea of the Hecate supper that was left at a threshold or at a crossroads to seek her favor in the coming months. So they would leave that at the new moon you know, about her tie to the moon there. And so it would be like small cakes, um, eggs, cheese, bread, dog meat. We'll get into that later. Uh, <laughs> oh my God. And you just casually just throw that in there. Yeah, dog meat, you know. 
dog meat. So, so dog meat. Hecate was offered the sacrifice of dogs, especially puppies, um, which makes me sad, but Americans are very weird about dogs and I, I love my dog and I get that. But the dog connection also could be the fact that dogs were known to eat the dead if left unburied. And so we see canine connections in a lot of dogs and a lot of gods of the underworld and people that rule the afterlife. So, you know, you can think about like the Egyptian god Anubis who guided souls to the underworld. Um, there's also the Greek three-headed hound of Hades, Ooh, Cerberus. That I love Cerberus. Cerberus is awesome. So that's why, again, sacrificing dogs and dog meat was part of the thing with Hecate, which does make me sad. Also, I, I, I'm loving that Cerberus has three heads. So we've got another another trinity. Another trinity. There's trinities all over the place. But, you know, like we mentioned, Christianity, they're ruining the fun world tour. They went on a campaign against women and older deities, which we've kind of talked about in some of our other episodes. And of course, Hecate, as this really powerful goddess who had dominion over the earth, sea, and sky, like, of course she was included in that. And so around that time, we start seeing her undergo a really, like, profound narrowing of her abilities as a goddess. So the ancients, you know, revered her as a goddess with a bunch of characteristics and abilities. And the image that we see after Christianity spread and sort of like watered her down was limited to that of like an underworld goddess. And then of course, in the early 20th century, her limited capacity was further reinforced uh, through the works of Aleister Crowley and Gerald Gardner. So, you know, clearly Crowley and Gardner did some great things for witchcraft. I will not deny that, but they also very clearly have their own misogynistic views that well, get I, pulled and, into and their writings. I would say, you know, it's like bringing things uh, into the forefront of intellectual discussion is very much a service to a lot of these pagan ideas that might have been lost to time. But I would say there is a difference between journalism which is like f taking the things that you found out via research and presenting them uh, in, in a factual way and like putting your spin on it. Yeah, the editorializing of Gardner and Crowley was real. It's real. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so because of all of that, basically when we get into the 20th century, a lot of which is understanding of her really is limited to like two roles as part of like the triple goddess imagery. So a lot of people see her as like the mother sort of figure in this. And then Cersei and Medea, her daughters form the other two pieces of that like Trinity for the mother of witches. And then of course, other people see her as like the dark goddess. And so they give her homage as like the queen of the witches and, you know, she really rules the underworld. And so you really do get this like super watered down, concept of who Hecate is. But there's been this really phenomenal modern Hecatean witchcraft evolution of the views of Hecate. And they really see her more as like the dark mother, the goddess of witches and the anima mundi. I love that. Anima mundi. I know. Anima mundi. You know, and a lot of this does come. There was some scholarship about her ancient origins that we saw a lot in like the late 20th century. So if you want to talk about like S.I. Johnson's Hecate Cetera. And, you know, as the 21st century begins, a lot of other writers start presenting alternative ideas about her, too. So this all sort of, like, rebounded. So we have this, like, huge view of her initially in ancient Greece, where she was kind of a goddess of all things. It really snaps back under 
Christianity's influence where she's basically just like a crone in the underworld. And then in the 21st century, we start seeing this re-expansion of her. And I think that it's a great uh, sort of story, too, if you think about like the divine feminine, right? This idea that like the divine feminine used to be very powerful. And then Christianity was like, no, no, no. And now we're sort of entering this phase of like redefining the divine feminine. And I think in a way that's even more inclusive, which is important. And Hecate's journey sort of mirrors that. I think that sort of transitions us now, though, into my topic of the week. I'll try and and move this. Um, We're talking about Sage, Salvia Aficionalis. Which is the, I think, like the perfect pairing for kitchen witchery. Sage is a is an important topic for a lot of reasons. So we'll we'll get into it here. You know, I've used, of course, the Herbal Academy website as always. Uh, the book Entering Hecate's Garden that I just mentioned, I used for part of this, and Green Witchcraft by Paige Vanderbeck. Also, my experience because I grow sage and I have done it well and I have done it poorly. Um, so, you know, I think sage is probably one of the first herbs though that new witches work with. Oh yeah, it's like you 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 go to the you go to the. Uh... The little occult bookstore and you buy a, a smudge wand, some tarot cards. Yep. And a couple and they of books. They always have those. They always have those like sage, the uh the smoke cleansing sticks. And you know, if you were of age a few years ago, you also might be familiar with the controversy um where Sephora decided to like release a beginner witch kit that included a white sage wand and uh the internet collectively freaked the fuck out because it was not cool um, right 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 for a lot of reasons also uh can, can i just say I, I feel like anyone who was serious about the craft and I, this is not to, to kind of downplay anyone um who got their start in witchcraft from sephora but <laughs> But if you did, I'd love to hear from you because I have not actually met anyone that that's the case for. Yeah, I've never I've never met anyone uh, who was like, yes, my start in witchcraft was I was buying foundation and, <laughs> um, you know, I was looking for a little something extra, you know, maybe maybe some toner. And uh, I decided why not become a witch? Right. Because they oh, had a God. little kit and it was just so convenient. They had a kit. <laughs> oh my God. It was so dumb. Um, <laughs> but so Sage, shocker, comes from the Mediterranean region, but it's actually been naturalized all around the world at this point. And it is a great addition to a witch's garden because it does thrive if it's being regularly harvested. So when you're removing parts of it regularly, it actually gets up to two feet tall and two feet wide. So it's a plant that really does love a good, vigorous pruning, which if you're wanting to use it in your practice or even in your kitchen is great. Um, The leaf and the flower color vary a lot depending on the cultivation, but common sage, which is the salvia officinalis we're talking about, um, has sort of a silvery green top and is almost white on the bottom. The leaves are soft. Um, The flowers range from purple to a light pink that's almost white. And the stems are square, which is really common in the Laminaceae family. So so would you say that um is it a different species from the sage that they use around Austin, for instance, for for landscaping, like the sage bushes with the purple flowers? No, that's most likely Salvia officinalis. Um there's there are a few different variations. I mean, I have a pineapple sage that I'm obsessed with that's really great in cocktails, but I think the big the other big one that people are probably familiar with is Salvia Apiana, which is the white sage that's uh, 
pretty controversial. You're right, right, uh, which right, right. We'll talk about, <laughs> but yeah, it's most likely salvia officinalis. I mean, it does. It needs sandy, loamy, well-draining soil, full sun, perfect in Austin. Um, and when the plants are young, you don't want them to completely dry out, but you can really back off the watering once they're well established. So they are great in places like you know Texas and even here in California. Yeah, I, th- I think I saw I saw a few of those sage bushes around LA for sure. Oh yeah, definitely. It really does have this like remarkable history of medicinal use. Um, the Latin name salvia actually comes from the word salvarem, which means to save. There's some Greek here. We're about to get into some stuff. The father of pharmacognosy, Dioscoriatus, was Nero's pharmacognosist and a military physician. I'm really sorry what if I butchered a, what, any of that. What a tongue twister, honestly. Right. But basically, Nero's pharmacognosis studied the medicine that comes from plants and herbs, and he noted sage as being one of the most important herbs of all time. Uh, He used it as a decoction to stop wounds from bleeding, for the treatment of ulcers, and as a tea to alleviate hoarseness and sore throats. I have plenty of tea blends that have sage in them that are for throats. Also, oh my god, this is so annoying. I really just want to jump in here and say that I forget what coffee shop it was that you took me to when I was in LA. I think the last time visiting you, they had like a sage iced tea. We only went to that place one time. So like, I'm very sorry that I cannot plug them. But that sage iced tea was so freaking mm. good. I love sage tea. I mean, in California, the air is very dry and I often have throat irritation. So sage teas are great. For things that I don't use it for, uh, the Egyptians used it for fertility. Uh, And in France, it was actually grown all over the place for tea, like we mentioned. Uh, And then in 812 AD, Charlemagne actually issued a decree that every farm on crown lands must grow sage for the benefit of the nation. (laughs) Charlemagne. Charlemagne or Charlemagne, (laughs) if you grew up in the U.S. where we butcher the French language regularly. English herbalists also believe that the state of sage in the garden determined how well a business would prosper. So less sage meant a failing business and more sage meant prosperity. So Charles the Great also ran a medicinal school in Salerno from 742 AD to 814 AD. Uh, and it's also said that sage was his favorite herb. So we we jump forward a little bit into the Middle Ages and the monks actually had 16 herbs that they used for their therapies within the monastery, which included sage. Uh, And in some places, it's actually required that monasteries still grow sage, which I think is fascinating. Are there still monasteries? I mean, I guess there have to be. Yeah, there are still monasteries. Weird. Uh, And the Chinese use it for stomach, digestive, and nervous system issues, and even for things like typhoid fever, um, liver disease, kidney disease, colds, and joint pain. And so in modern times, I mean, classic herbalism, right? We've been able to scientifically identify what makes sage such an amazing medicinal herb for treating, you know, the three main sources of disease, which are like bacteria, viruses, and fungi. There are <laughs> uh, there are chemical co- compounds like flavonoids, terpenoids, and essential oils that are present in all the different species of salvia. But essential oils are really important sources for the screening of the anti-cancer, antimicrobial, antioxidant, and free radical scavenging agents, which I just love. So if you want to think of something that could heal you, sage can probably do it. <laughs> right. So- <laughs> but, it's, but it's, you know, and like circling back to the, the whole kitchen witch thing, it's like, it's delicious. 
It's also delicious. I love sage. Like I said, I am currently obsessed with my pineapple sage. It is so good in a whiskey cocktail. Like it is remarkably delicious. And so, of course, you know, we talk about all of these like amazing medicinal properties. So, of course, it has like really strong magical connotations that are related to like cleansing and protection. Um, The elemental correspondences are earth and air. It's associated with the signs of Aquarius, Pisces, Sagittarius, and Taurus. And my favorite color, black. (laughs) So I think everyone is probably familiar with using sage for smoke cleansing, you know, like we've talked about. And of course, that Mm. makes sense. You know, it's been used across cultures for smoke cleansing. Um, And of course, in addition to cleansing spaces, like you see all the time, you can also cleanse like your tools or your crystal jewelry, like I do. And then I love this suggestion to grow sage as actually a form of protection for your home, just growing the plant for protection. So, you know, you think about all these properties of the smoke and of course, like the live plant would also have those amazing protective properties. And like, as you're caring for the plant, you can like pour your intention into it and like ask it to serve as protection for your home. And I, I love that idea of using a sage plant that way, you know, without having to cut it off to make it useful, the living plant itself does still have those properties. And in entering Hecate's garden, Cindy Brandon outlined a really cool way to create like a sage guardian amulet. And so to do this, you'll just need a sprig of sage, a small piece of black obsidian or another type of protective crystal that you feel drawn to and a small glass vial. And so essentially you just pop the crystal and the sage into the vial and you wrap it with a black cord and then you can wear it around your neck for continued protection and insight, which I thought was really great. And I mean, it's like sage keeps on working. It does keep on working. Now that we've talked about all of the really amazing things that you can do with sage, I think it's important before we end the segment to address the problems with using white sage. Um, (laughs) I know. So Salvia Appiana has a long and rich history of ceremonial and religious use by Native American tribes. And it is really common, especially here in California, where the herb is native. And with this big boom in the wellness industry and the desire that that's brought to sort of mix the spiritual and the physical wellness, there's been a really big growth in the use of white sage in particular, (laughs) like in places like yoga studios, wellness kits from beauty shops, and even quote unquote smudge sticks are sold at Whole Foods, which is a little gross. And the trendiness of like smudging is really just another thing in like a long line of colonial predation of native nations. And that's really, I mean, that covers everything, you know, it's like their lands, their language, their culture. And it just keeps getting taken from them. And the worst part, I think, is the really like cavalier manner in which this sort of takes rituals that are sacred and strips them of their protocol and their community. I I mean, exactly. You know, like buying a a smudging stick with your mangoes and your organic yogurt is uh, it's not it's not a grocery. No, it's not not a grocery item. No. And the. Due to the plant's, you know, increasing popularity outside of its traditional context, white sage has actually been over-harvested in a lot of areas, and it's now included in United Plant Savers to Watch list. And Native practitioners are having a hard time securing the plant for their own uses. And when you're using something for magical properties, it's really important to be aware of the energies connected to it. And I think 
you know, Nick, you're right. It's not groceries. Like, can you imagine the type of energy that like you're bringing into your practice and bringing in with something that's supposed to be cleansing when you're using something that was like mass harvested by Amazon, trying to make a quick buck off of like the traditions of a people that suffered mass genocide. Oh, right, right. Like, well, I mean, but it's also like, I mean, they don't sell rosary beads at the grocery store. Like they don't, it's funny that yeah. they can just sell like a quote unquote religious artifact at the checkout by the chocolate and shit. Like, yeah. It's really not okay. And so out of respect for the plant's ceremonial use and its dwindling wild populations that, again, are making it really difficult for native practitioners to get an herb that is central to some of their practices, I really, really want you to consider making smoke wands from common garden sage instead. You could also use rosemary, which we talked about. Also, you know, research your own lineage. Um, see what their smoke cleansing traditions look like. Most most traditions do have some sort of smoke cleansing in it and get some inspiration from that. I think that those are really great alternatives. And I do think in in light of this, I, it's really important to become familiar with like the native land that you occupy. So here in Los Angeles, I live in the ancestral lands of the Tongva or the Quiche. Uh, and Nick, from my research, it seems Austin occupies the ancestral lands of the Comanche, the Tonkawa, Humano, and the Coahueltecan peoples. So I think especially as practitioners of magic and witchcraft, we really do have to do better because we know better. And it's impossible in Native America to divorce ourselves as people working with energies from this horrific history. No. Yeah, there's no there's no way. Yeah. The least you can do is be respectful and also acknowledge the lands that you live on. It's just, it's just, it's just be conscious. That's all we're saying. Yeah. Just be conscious of it. Exactly. Be conscious of it. And if you have the ability, you know, making a donation to native causes, I think can be a really fantastic thing to do on Thanksgiving. So, and hey, you know, it's like making your own stuff is the best. But if you are going to buy something that's tied into, another culture's magical practice buy it from a native practitioner 100 percent. exactly that's what i was gonna say too if you really do want to continue using white sage if that's something that for some reason feels very important to you find native peoples to buy it from so you are at least supporting their culture but also you can you can grow it yourself in most of the u.s so that's that's the soapbox of the day, but it is really important. And, you know, a big thank you to all of the Native peoples whose land we are on because this is a shitty country built on a lot of blood. And it's a shitty country built on a beautiful land. Exactly. It's built on a beautiful land that took a lot of things from beautiful people. And I do hope that we're becoming more and more aware culturally and coming to terms with this and learning how to make amends because that's that's the only way forward. And I think as spiritual practitioners. It's something we have to pay attention to. Yes. Yes. We have to pay attention to and we know better. So we have to do better. The end. The we end. Just have to. So we're doing. So. so that brings us like we're we're very we're drawing very, very close to the bitter end here. And um, it's Terrascope time. It's Terrascope time. And this is a Shannon week. And this week, for my dear Taurus babies, 
I drew the seven of pentacles, which uh, Nick immediately said when I told him, it was like, this is such big Taurus energy. So it's very appropriate. This is a card that really speaks to long-term planning, you know, diligence, hard work, not get rich quick, really about like laying a solid foundation for future successes. And the artwork in my Line Strider deck, this card is actually represented by the Bowerbird building its nest. And this species is delightful. Uh, the male bird will actually build, decorate, and maintain sort of this elaborate structure to attract their mate. And it's really this cool looking thing where they, they'll they bring in things like twigs and like pretty stones and flowers and even like iridescent insect skeletons to sort of like adorn this like giant basically cool house that they're building to attract their I mean, mate. it's like that it's like the temple of love exactly so this card you know it could be congratulating you on the rewards of your lengthy efforts um that you know you'll soon be enjoying and if you feel frustrated like you're in a place where you've been putting in a ton of effort and you're not seeing the payoff this card is really here to tell you your efforts will soon be rewarded and this is a good this is a good news card i i think you know it's like you don't even have to to finish this because you could just be like, hey, Taurus, chill out. And they'll be like one step ahead of you. Exactly. Exactly. Taurus already knows what I'm going <laughs> to say. Um, but this is a it's a good news card. It's the universe sees you and it sees the hard work that you've been doing. And even if you don't feel it yet, you will feel the payoff. Um, and I again, I mentioned last time I did a Terascope, my book has these great associations with plants. And this card is associated with rhubarb, caraway seed and mint. And I was just obsessed with these plant associations because caraway only sprouts flowers and seeds in the second year. It goes through an entire year before it does that. Rhubarb actually has to have prolonged cold to thrive. It needs to go through a winter where there's like regularly temperatures under 40 degrees or it won't do well and then mint of course would just like take over the world if we didn't ever harvest <laughs> it so i was like all of these plants are such like big taurus big seven of pentacles energy so taurus loves we adore you you are my earth brethren and good things are coming good things are coming you're, you're, you know, you're, says, you're, so. you're growing the garden you are you're planting the seeds and even though it feels dark right now and we're in the dark half of the year and right now there's a lot of like planning and that's not always as, you know, there's not immediate payoff it's not when you're fun. doing this type of thing. No, but this is the thing that makes it all go round. So good, good job, Taurus babies. So that wraps things up for today. Um, thank you everybody for listening. We would again, really, really love to hear from you. If you have ideas, thoughts, mean comments, if you just want to like, tell Nick and I that we're awesome, shoot us an email or you can message us on Instagram. Um, again, our email is wandsandfronspod at gmail.com and our Instagram handle is wandsandfronspod. And uh, you guys all absolutely know the drill by now, but please subscribe to the podcast so you're not going to miss an episode. And if you're feeling extra super generous, please give us some stars. Please, please, sir, can I have some stars, please? <laughs> <laughs> we uh, we hope you guys will join us again next week. So until next time, uh, blessed be kitchen bitches. <laughs> blessed be kitchen bitches. Goodbye. Bye now. Onions are some fuck shit. For sure.